Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, good morning. I'll try that one more time. Good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be here with you this morning. I I feel the need to introduce myself because I see so many new faces and it's been a little while. So my name is Ryan. I uh, was on staff here for five and a half years before my wife Callie and I were sent out, uh, not kicked out, but sent out to go to be a part of planting a church in uh, in Austin, Texas. And so it's great to uh, be able to be back with you this morning. So let me just give you a really brief update before we jump into God's Word, um, a, a brief update about our church. So there are about 20 people or so right now who are a part of what we call our core team, which is the group of people who have uh, said that they are committed to being a part of helping us plant uh, this church. So we gather every Sunday night to study the Bible, to pray, to be equipped, to uh, live missionally in where, whatever places God has sent us. And then uh, throughout the week, we have three different groups that meet in different parts of the city, what we call missional communities. And uh, they're meant to be like uh, the dinner parties that Jesus would throw in the gospel, where in the gospels, where we invite lost people in, we eat good food, we have good conversation, and then we share the gospel. And so uh, just one quick story from our missional community. One of our members named Ben uh, invited a coworker with him who is not a follower of Jesus. And uh, we shared the gospel before dinner like we typically do. And uh, I found out later that at some point during the night after I had shared the gospel, Ben's coworker leaned over to him and said, man, I got to tell you for a second, I was really worried that you had invited me to a Bible study. And that was something that he was not going to be excited about apparently. And yet, and yet that same guy has been coming back over and over again to our dinner party. And he's invited his girlfriend now to come with him. So he's already living missionally and he's not even a Christian yet right? Yet being the key word. I'll update you the next time that I come back. But I also, but really quickly before we jump in, just want to honor uh, your leaders, the leadership here at this church. I can do this now since I'm not one of them. Uh, but I know, I know that Scott's not here this morning, but Scott, Rick, Julie, Garrett, uh, Jordan, I just want to honor all of you and, uh, and thank you for leading well. I know you're serving in different parts around here this morning, but I want to thank you. Yeah. I think, uh, I think sometimes it's, it's easier to notice something whenever you're coming in as an outsider and you're not uh, in the thick of it on a regular basis. So as someone who is, is now uh, in some senses an outsider, one of the things that's most encouraging is to come back and to see the new life and the new faces, the new growth, new fruit, new plans, new dreams that God has put into your heart as a church. And in many ways, uh, as I was kind of thinking about this this past week, I think that you are at this point of transition as a church. I don't know if you feel that or not, but transitions are these moments where kind of in between time where the old is gone, but the new isn't fully here yet. And in many ways, I think you're, you're at a point like that as a church where everything that you're dreaming about is out in front of you. And that transition, 
that's happening for you as a church is happening in the midst of uh, what could easily be called a crisis in the culture and in the church at large. And I could give you all kinds of statistics this morning. I thought about doing it, but honestly, I don't feel like I need to do very much convincing to tell you that we live at a time of crisis in the church and in the culture. And on top of the transitions here and on top of the the crisis that's happening in our culture and, and multiple crises that are happening in our culture, the reality is that there are all kinds of personal transitions and personal crises that are happening in each of the lives that are represented in this room right now. And so the question that we need to ask in situations like this is what do we do in moments like this? There are a few different options. You could choose to to give in to despair. Nothing's ever going to change, so I may as well well numb myself to the situation. You could choose to, to double down on your own plans and your own power as the way to get you where you want to go. Or you could choose the third option. And the third option is that in the midst of the crises and in the midst of the transitions, you could choose to pursue renewal. You choose to pursue renewal. This is is what I think in the midst of all of the things that are happening around us, we could easily miss. Moments of crisis and transition are also invitations to renewal. Moments of crisis and transition are also invitations to renewal. And so when I use that word renewal, which I'll be using a lot today, here's what I mean by that word. I'm talking about the fresh, new life and intimacy and power and fruit that comes when God's people choose to pursue the presence of God and to partner in the mission of God. Moments of crisis and transition are invitations to experience that to experience the fresh life and intimacy and power and fruit that God can provide. It's always when things are at their lowest and God's people get desperate enough to seek him with everything that they have. It's then, in those moments, that God pours out new life and intimacy and power and fruit. And if that's the case, then here's what I want us to understand this morning. This is the greatest time to be a disciple of Jesus in history, and you are the people that he has chosen for this moment. Moments of crisis and transition are invitations to renewal. And the reason I feel confident in saying that is because of the pattern that's laid out for us in Exodus 33. So let's think about the the context for a moment, and then we'll we'll look at the text. So Exodus 33 comes uh, in between Exodus 32 before it and Exodus 34 to 40 uh, following it. That's the the type of high-level Bible teaching that you can expect from me this morning. Exodus 33, in between Exodus 32 and the rest of the book of Exodus. But that's important because as you talked about last week in Exodus 32, uh, it's the golden calf incident, right? People, the people in the moment really that the covenant is being ratified commit idolatry and worship a golden calf. It's the lowest moment a moment of crisis in the history of God's people. One commentator said it's like committing adultery on your wedding night. God said he would give them the promised land, right, in response to, to, because of their idolatry. He said, I'll give you the promised land, but my presence is not going to go with you. That's, that's where they're at. But in what comes after Exodus 33, what you'll talk about over the next few weeks The rest of the book of Exodus is all about the construction of the tabernacle where God's presence 
is going to be restored to its rightful place at the center of God's people. And that is renewal. That, that's what I'm talking about today. That is renewal. God's presence being restored to the center of God's people. And so here's the question. What happens in between or what happens in Exodus 33 to take us from what God is saying at the end of Exodus 32 to his presence being restored to the center of his people at the end of the book of Exodus. I think what's happening is that a pattern of renewal is being laid out for us that he's inviting us into as well. So let's look at it this morning. Exodus 33. I want to begin in verse 1. God starts just by reiterating what he's already said to Moses at the end of chapter 32. He says, The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but here's the bad news, I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard, listen to this, this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. So don't miss what's happening here at the beginning of, of Exodus 33 and really back into the end of Exodus 32. What happened with the golden calf in Exodus 32 was that the people craved the divine presence so much that they tried to, to manufacture their own version of it when the real thing is up on top of the mountain with Moses. And now because of that, because of that idolatry, God says that his divine presence, his empowering presence that they were so craving is actually going to be even further removed from them than it already was. What he says to Moses and to the people is, I will give you my promises, but I'm not going to give you my presence. By the way, I just want us to understand, this is the vision of the post-Christian moment that we are living in. It's the desire for the justice and peace and love and freedom that come with the kingdom of God, but it's, it's seeking those things apart from the king being at the center of it. And that's why there's so much con confusion about what those things mean and how to get to those things. All of those things are found in the presence of God. And when you try to get God's stuff apart from God's presence, you end up with idolatry and chaos and exhaustion. You end up with Exodus 32. So when the people hear what God is saying, you, you heard the word that he used. It says they saw it as a disastrous word. They mourned. They're at the point now where God's promises without God's presence sounds disastrous to them. This is stage one in this pattern of renewal that I was talking about. This moment of, of what I want to call holy discontent. Holy discontent. It's this point where we come to the end of ourselves and say, this is not the way things are going to be anymore. Whether it's, whether it's a, a low level of faith in your own life or, or something that's happening in the church or something that's happening in the city or in the culture at large, it's coming to this point of saying, this is not the way that things are going to be anymore. This is what psychologists actually call the crystallization of discontent. It's probably the favorite phrase that I've ever heard in my life. People ask you at, at lunch what you learned today. You can say we talked about the crystallization of discontent, right? The conversation will be over, but they will be impressed with your vocabulary. So the crystallization of discontent. 
It's, it's this moment where, where all, just think about it this way, all kinds of people in the world who are dissatisfied with something, right? Whether it's in their lives, whether it's in the culture, whatever it may be. But the tendency when we get dissatisfied with something is to numb that discontent with Netflix or Instagram or work or whatever it is, rather than to let that discontent crystallize into a resolve that this is not the way things are going to be anymore. Something's got to change. And that deep discontent with how things are, I'm, just talking about, I'm not talking about an a ungodly discontent that's not grateful for the things God's giving you. I'm talking about a holy discontent that longs for all that God wants to give you. It's actually a gift, this discontent is, because it's God inviting you into more. It's like C.S. Lewis said, God, God doesn't find our desires too strong God finds our desires too weak. We're too easily pleased with golden calves when the presence of God is on the table. We need to let that discontent crystallize in our hearts. That's what the people did, and it led to stage two in this pattern. Stage two is confession and repentance. Look at verse five with me. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So what's all this about ornaments? What is, what is the, the author talking about? These ornaments were things that the Israelites were wearing. And so in the ancient Near East, where all of this is taking place, mourning and repentance didn't just involve your attitude, it also involved your appearance. Right? These ornaments were some type of decorative jewelry that the people were wearing, probably made of gold, which should, in our minds, if we're thinking in, in context of the book of Exodus, it should take us back to first the Exodus uh, moment, the Exodus event, where God's people were sent out with all this gold jewelry from the people of, of Egypt, but then also to Exodus 32, where Aaron calls them to give their gold jewelry to him as the means of making an idol. It's a reference back to how the golden calf was made. So God calls them to remove their ornaments, to take off their gold jewelry as an act of repentance, as a, as a means of saying, we are leaving behind our old idolatry. We're leaving behind the old ways. And notice that it says they, they actually took off their jewelry from Mount Horeb all the way onward, right? So for the rest of their journey in the wilderness, the Israelites dressed themselves in a posture of repentance, isn't that interesting? Renewal didn't start with critiquing and condemning the Egyptians or the Canaanites, but with confession and repentance of their own sin. So if we want to be people, if you want to be someone who seeks God for renewal in the generation that we are living in, it's going to start with God doing a work of renewal in you, where he rids your temple, your heart of the idol's that are at home there. And throughout the Exodus story, God's presence, you know, you know, if you've been along for the journey, God's presence has been pictured, has been described as a fire, right? And what we're learning here is that it's repentance that determines whether that fire refines you or whether that fire destroys you. That leads to stage three, which is cultivating friendship with God. 
when sin is continually being confessed and forgiven and destroyed and repented of, what that does is it opens a door to a depth of relationship with God that we can't have otherwise. Look at verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. And listen to verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. You guys have talked over the past few weeks about the plans for the tabernacle that God had given to Moses and how the tabernacle was meant to be right at the center of the life of God's people. All the 12 tribes of Israel were to be gathered around this presence of God in the tabernacle that was to be at the center. But instead, now in verses 7 through 11, his presence is on the outskirts of the camp. Instead of the whole community getting to enjoy God's presence, it's just one man that gets to. And the picture that the author is giving you is incredible. So don't don't miss this, that as Moses would make his way outside the camp to go to the tent, everyone would come out and they would stand at the entrance to their tents. And when they saw, it says, the manifest presence of God in the cloud come down to meet with Moses, they would worship in awe that a human being was talking to God. So just imagine that, like, it, it, it may sound a little bit silly, but even if there was just a, a little tent up here on stage that every single week you watched as Pastor Scott walked down the aisle to go into the tent and meet with God, one man going into the presence of God on behalf of the people. And that one man, in this case, Moses, would speak with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. What a verse, right? What a, what a vision. This is God's vision for you, all of his people, that you would make your life first and foremost about cultivating friendship and intimacy and love and communion with him. I'll just be honest with you as I've been thinking about this this past week and reflecting on this passage. I've just been reminded friendship with God is the is the obsession of my life. I'm turning, I'm, uh, I'm turning 30 in a few months, and uh, I would say that's hard to believe, but Callie posted a picture a few weeks ago on our fifth anniversary, and I was like, I've aged 10 years in the last five years. So <laughs> maybe it's not as hard to believe as it would have been at one time. But regardless, turning 30 and being in this stage has me uh, reflecting on who I've been in the past, things that have happened to me, and who I want to be in the future. And every single time over and over again, this is the verse that I come back to. I want to be friends with God. I want communion with him. I want intimacy with him. I read recently an author named Dallas Willard who said, when I die, I think I'm going to be the last one to know. You think about that for just a second. Everybody else is going to know pretty quickly, but for me, I'm going to go with the friendship with, I, with God that I have now to just an even more real friendship with God then. That's available for all of us today. And that's the, that's, this really is the root of all 
renewal, is friendship with God. Corporate renewal follows personal renewal, and personal renewal happens through cultivating friendship with God. Which leads to the fourth stage. I want to call this the stage of desperate prayer. Desperate prayer. Look with me at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God says to him, my presence will go with you. But important to note that you is singular. My presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, Moses says back to God, almost as if he's not listening to what God has to say. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, plural, the whole people of God, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So don't let whatever familiarity you have with this passage keep you from missing how crazy this is. Moses is arguing with God. If you're sitting next to Moses at prayer gathering, you're probably scooting your chair over a little bit out of fear of what might happen to him because of the way that he's praying. Like, we're not used to prayer like this. But this is desperate prayer. This is, this is covenantal prayer. It's what some people call contending prayer, where you hold God to his character and his promises and his word. Moses recognizes that the crisis that the people are facing and the mission that God has given him is far too great to complete apart from God's empowering presence going with them. And he says to God, we would rather die in the wilderness than go into the promised land without you. And let's be clear, we're tempted in very similar ways, even thousands of years later as the church. Our plans and our power have the potential to keep us from prioritizing God's presence. We've got to get to the point where we say, all the promises of God, all of them coming true, all of our plans working out without the presence of God, there's one word to describe that, and the word is disastrous. Disaster. Nothing would be more tragic. If I could just speak to this church, as someone who loves this church, nothing would be more tragic for Calvary than to achieve every single point of a strategic plan and reach young families and disciple the next generation and fill up this worship center and get to the end of it and say, but the Spirit wasn't there. It's not production value that makes the church distinct, and I love production value. It's not great music, and this church has great music. All of that stuff is great, but the world can do that stuff. The one thing that distinguishes God's people is God and God's presence with his people, and God's presence has to be contended for. And what this does is it drives us to our knees, just like it did for Moses. It drives us to contend. It drives us to say, God, you said you were going to do this, and it's your honor and your reputation that's at stake here. I will not let you go until you bless me. And look what happens in the next verse. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Like, if God were to say that to you, what would happen? 
What have you been praying for? What have you been asking him for, contending for? God says, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Seems like that should be the end of the conversation, but Moses, in typical fashion, he's not done. Look at verse 18. Moses said five words, please show me your glory. There's no more simple, bold, audacious request than what Moses asks here. So think about it. If anybody has seen, you've been going through the book of Exodus for a long time. If anybody has seen God's glory, it's Moses, right? Think about the the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea, the 10 plagues, the, the mountaintop where he went into this cloud of God's glory in the tent of meeting. But Moses wasn't content with what he had seen in the past. He wanted more. He hungered to see more of God's glory. And one man's hunger leads to stage five, which is corporate renewal. Corporate renewal follows personal renewal. And because Moses steps into this gap as a friend of God and intercedes on behalf of the people, God puts his presence where it belongs, right back at the center of his people. And you'll talk about that over the next few weeks. But there is a problem that comes up in this passage. If you were to keep reading, we don't have time to read the whole rest of the chapter today, but God tells Moses in response to his request to show him his glory, he says, oh, basically, okay, I will, but I need you to know that all I can do is show you basically a glimpse of it. All I can do is show you my back. I can't show you my face because man, he says, cannot see me and live. And so you're left with the question, like, how are we supposed to be a people who pursue renewal? And how are we supposed to be people who cultivate friendship with God if it's not possible for us to experience that type of intimacy with him, right? And so I want us to fast forward a few hundred years to Jesus. There's a scene that takes place in in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is on top of a mountain and he's praying with three of his disciples, Uh, He's praying with Peter, James, and John. And all of a sudden, they get this unexpected glimpse of Jesus in all his glory. And it says that they see two people who are talking with him. One of them is Elijah. You know who the other one is? It's Moses. And it says that they're actually talking to him about his exodus or talking to him about his departure that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They're talking about the cross. So the person who was told that he could not see God face to face stands on top of a mountain in a cloud of glory looking God in the face. And so here's, here's what that means for us, among other things. God's vision for you is friendship with him, and he has made that possible for you through Jesus. Just, just like the Israelites, if we're being honest about what happens in our hearts, we choose golden calves over the presence of God all the time. And that keeps us from the intimacy with God that we were created for. But the good news is that just like the people of Israel, we have someone who went outside the camp for us. We have someone who stood in the gap and interceded for us at the cross so that we could experience this renewal that God is offering us. The only one who deserved to be in the presence of the Father was cut off so that those of us who didn't deserve to be there could be invited in. And as Jesus breathes his last breath, the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom as if God is saying to us, not just that your sin has been paid for and you can go have a nice life and I'll see you in heaven. That's not the gospel. 
The gospel is that in Jesus's death and resurrection, the veil has been torn and God is saying to us, yes, your sin has been paid for, but not just you can go, your sin has been paid for and you can come. You can enter in, you can experience this intimacy that you were created for. In my presence, God says, is fullness of joy. And this is God's vision for every single one of us. This this is the primary invitation of discipleship. Jesus invites his disciples to be with him, right? And this is what leads to renewal in the church that ultimately spills out into the culture. Unless we think that this is just something that's true for people back in Exodus, or maybe it's true for Jesus and a couple of his original disciples, the church in Acts understood this, right? In Acts 1, we see that all the disciples were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. And then in in Acts 2, what happens? The Spirit falls. God's presence comes. In Acts 4, Peter and John are released from prison, and they go back and report all that's happened. And the disciples begin to pray together. And what happens? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, Peter's praying on a roof when, uh, when, when a group of Gentiles come and knock on his door. He goes and preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, and what happens? The Spirit falls. In Acts 12, Peter is in prison, and it says that earnest prayer was being made for him. And that very night, an angel of the Lord leads Peter out of the prison untouched. Last one, in Acts 13, a group of Christ followers in Antioch prays and worships and fasts, and the Spirit speaks to them and says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, and a church planting movement is born out of a prayer gathering. We could go on and on, but what's clear in the book of Acts is that every single move of God in the book of Acts is preceded by the contending desperate prayers of God's people. And maybe you're like, okay, that's the church in Acts. Things are a little bit different now. Let me give you another example. Evan Roberts was a 13-year-old who worked in the coal mines in Wales. But he he had this encounter with God where he was given godly vision, where he was given this, this holy discontent for a generation that didn't know Jesus in his country. And he said, something's got to change. So what he did was he he started studying his Bible. He prayed every day for 13 years that God would send revival. And 13 years later, he was leading a little small youth group. It's a small group of people, young people in his church. And he was teaching on revival. And a girl stood up in the middle of that teaching on revival. And all she says is, I just want everybody to know I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And over the course of the next two months, revival broke out in Wales and 70,000 people came to know Jesus in the span of two months. Eight months later, there had been 100,000 people who came to faith. They actually called it the newspaper revival because these notorious celebrities and sinners were coming to faith in Jesus and the newspapers would write about it. So just imagine, like people today, looking back on our time uh, People in 100 years looking back on our day and people being like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Taylor Swift and Harry Styles and Beyonce, they all became Christians in the span of 10 months, right? And how did it happen? It happened because a teenager got desperate enough to say something has to change in my generation. Maybe some of you are thinking again, that's great but you don't know how busy I am. Like I'm taking care of kids. Uh, I've got grandkids that I'm trying to watch out for. You don't know how busy I am. Let me share one more story with you. I've been reading a lot lately about a guy named John Wesley. 
who, uh, who's a leader in a revival that happened in England in the 1700s, but his mom's name was Susanna Wesley. And Susanna, Susanna doesn't get enough credit. I'll tell you why. She, she uh, was raising 12 kids, 12 kids, educating all of them, raising all of them while her husband was in prison. And the only way that she could find time to be by herself, maybe some of you can relate to this, was to put an apron over her head, right? That's the only way that she could get some, some alone time. Maybe that is a little bit negligent. I don't know. But she would, she would get under the apron and she would spend time with God and she would contend for the salvation of her children. And in response to those prayers, one of her sons named Charles became the greatest worship leader of his generation and another of her sons, John, became the greatest revivalist of his generation. And it happened in response to prayers under an apron. And that Methodist movement that her sons founded, by the way, also led to the founding of a lot of schools and colleges, one of them being a place called Asbury University, which maybe you have heard of. All I'm trying to tell you, all I'm trying to tell you is that God is still doing the stuff that he did in the book. Same book, same God, same spirit, same power, same pattern. I want, to invite, I want to invite the band up now, and I just want to, to close this morning um, with a verse from, from the book of Habakkuk. And um, there, there's a verse in the book of Habakkuk that really is a, a prayer that, that Habakkuk prays. Um, it comes from Habakkuk chapter 3. And, and what he says in that prayer is something along the lines of, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. And then he he prays this prayer. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So for some of us, we read stories like the stories that are in the book of Exodus, or we hear about things like the book of Acts and the way that God responded with power when his people came together to pray and we're in all of those stories but we never get to participate in them. Our experience is so, is so different. So what I want to invite us to do today is really just to pray three simple words. To hear stories like what we're reading today. To hear things that are happening in the world at different times in history that God is doing and just to say, God, in our time, in our day, make those things known. Repeat them in our day. Do what only you can do in this church. Do what only you can do in our culture right now. Do what only you can do in the church. And what happens when we do get to that point of being desperate enough is that God begins to renew us. He begins to make us into people that we can't make ourselves into. We're people who can, who can carry his presence into the, the jobs and the friend groups and the neighborhoods and everywhere else that we live in this city and people who can bring renewal to those places. So I want to invite us just to pray today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead us, but you can pray in your own heart and in your own mind. Just come before God just really simply. Say, God, in our day, in our time, in our church, 
in this generation, in the next generation, in our city, in our country, in our world, in our time. God, that's it. That's what we want. We, we do confess that there are a lot of times that we choose the golden calves over the presence. Lord, we confess our sin to you. We ask that you would make us new. And I pray that you would, you would allow us to have not a, not a sinful discontent, but a holy discontent to say, this is not the way that things are going to be anymore. In whatever arena that is for us, this is not the way things are gonna be anymore. Things are gonna be different. Not because we have the power to do it, but because we're coming to you and asking you to do what only you can do. So God, really simply, just pray in our time. Repeat your deeds that you've done in the past in our day. Renew your work in our time in this city, in our world, God. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.